invite you to take a Bible and open up to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, page 714 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 22 all the way to 33, Mark's Gospel chapter 8, verse 22 to 33. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. They, this is Jesus and the disciples, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes, then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesar- villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. If you would, please, let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we do pray with our Bibles open that Your Holy Spirit will be our teacher, that we will lose sight of the messenger, and if it pleases you, we would be gripped and transformed, and yes, God, revolutionized by the message, which is the embodiment of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and in whose name I preach. Amen. Well, we are now at the pivotal point in Mark's gospel. And one of the things which makes it so is that Mark is going to reveal to us just how blind a person is, how powerless they are to respond to Christ, so much so that apart from a work of God's grace, their spiritual condition is absolutely hopeless. And as you think about this, even just a quick survey through what has already taken place so far in Mark's gospel will help us see this. So we have the Son of God, Jesus In the beginning, calling his disciples, caring for his disciples, teaching them, feeding them, loving him, sharing his power, sharing his authority with the disciples. He displays with absolute clarity that he has power over creation to them. He displays he has power over sickness, and yes, he even has power over death. And there's no vanity at all in this. Uh, He's not boasting Jesus isn't about how tremendous he is. This is no uh, hubris. 
He is absolute perfection. He is the perfect witness, the perfect evangelist, the perfect preacher, the perfect human, perfect in humility, perfect in love. And yet, yet those closest to him are still unable to see who he is. They, they can't hear him. They can't believe. They have no understanding who Jesus is. Now, as you think about that, many of us have grown up around the notion that if you just got more serious about your Christianity, you could have a marvelous impact. As if the whole thing were up to you, waiting on you to get serious about things. No, it's good to be serious. It's the Christian's duty to have a ready answer for the reason of the hope which we have. It's our duty to go and make disciples, but it will only be apart from God's grace if we have any impact at all. By the way, think about that. Do, Do you think Jesus is not serious this far in his mission? And do we think he's having a marvelous impact with his ministry team at this part of the story? No, not really. So do we think that somehow Jesus was defective in his approach because the 12 don't believe? No. And beyond this, we have the witness of the New Testament, which teaches so plainly that human beings like you and my eye, like the disciples here, we are spiritually blind and we are spiritually dead. And it is only by God's grace, by His Spirit, can blind eyes be opened to see the truth and dead hearts be awakened to believe the truth. That salvation is all of God or it's not salvation. For example, John's Gospel, chapter 3, Nicodemus is told by Jesus, unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus ends by saying, so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. In other words, people are blind to the kingdom of God until they have been born again by God. Again, John chapter 9, a man is born blind and Jesus heals him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be clarified, so that you would understand the fullness of Christ. And then right after that, Paul follows his prayer by writing to the church, everything of your salvation is of God's grace. All of it, even the faith to believe, is a gift from God. And so this transition from blindness to sight or from darkness to light takes place every time a person genuinely becomes a Christian. J.C. Ryle on this said, conversion is illumination. Conversion is to see the truth as it is in Jesus. So what I want you to see is this section, which begins with the story of a blind man, helps illustrate how the disciples were completely blind to the identity of Jesus And to remind us that like the disciples, we need divine revelation. We need an act of God to completely understand who Jesus is. And if you're thinking things through, it's actually a lesson for the modern church, right? Because the modern church so often depends more on method than God's might and God's mercy and God's message. So if things don't go the way they had hoped, they immediately change something thinking that it's all up to them. This man was physically blind. 
the disciples spiritually blind. And in each case, each case, it is an act of God which needs to take place in order to save both the blind man and the blind disciples from their blindness. Okay? So let's go right to it. Verse 22, our first point, there's an intervention and a healing. So this blind man is surrounded by some good people. You'll see that if your Bible's open. Verse 22. And they brought this blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. No doubt the word had gone out that Jesus touches people and good things happen. So this blind man with good friends is taken by the hand of a good man, Jesus. And Jesus, verse 23, does a good thing as he leads the blind man by the hand outside the village. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, here's a couple of reasons. We've already been told in chapter 7, verse 37, that Jesus does everything well. Beyond that, this blind man's life was probably a public spectacle already because typically blind people in that context at that time, they would have to beg on the city streets daily for food. If there was no begging, there would be no eating. So typically blind people were pretty well known. And knowing both things, that we can see Jesus has good reason then for this private healing. And the language that Jesus uses here is tactile. It's the language of touch. He took him by the hand. And if you've ever known people with partial or a full blindness, you know and probably understand how much touch means to them. How reassuring it would be when Jesus takes the man by the hand. And of course, Jesus does that. Now, the unique part of this healing is not the spitting on the man's eye. Okay, In that time, in that place, believe it or not, the cultural assumption was by some that spit was a medium in which those who had healing powers used. Okay, So they had to stay well hydrated, especially on a busy day. But if you think about that, just think about that. Jesus takes something common in culture to help this guy. So before he actually gets healed, Jesus gives him a little bit of hope. Right? Right before the healing, the guy's like, oh, good. People are spitting. Something good's going to happen. Okay, the spitting's not the unique part. The unique part of this healing is there's a part one and a part two. Verse 23, Jesus touches the man for the first time asking, do you see anything? And what is the man's reply? It's essentially kind of sort of but not fully. And after Jesus touches the man a second time, Mark says, this man saw everything Clearly, verse 23, he sees something. Verse 25, he sees everything. And as a result of this, Jesus sends the man home. Why? Well, the need to go back to the place of his begging had ended, right? This is a picture of salvation. His old life was gone. It was over. Darkness gone. Light has come. So when the people on the city streets, they would ask the question, where's the blind man? Oh, oh, he met Jesus. Jesus took him off by the hand. That's the last we've seen of them. And imagine the blind man coming home. Now, he couldn't come home by himself, right? He usually would have to have an entourage, one or two people to help him along the way. And so here comes, if you would, dad. And the first question was, dad, where's the crew? And dad's like, oh, it's okay. I met Jesus. He spat on me, but it was okay because I'm healed. And then take it a little further to mealtime. Mealtime for the first time, and let's say the guy was married. And after all those years, he gets to stare at his wife at the dinner table, right? 
And she would say something like, honey, you know, would you stop staring at me? And he would say, at least in our house, he'd say, baby, <laughs> I can't help it. I left here blind. I came home with a little spit on me, but I'm seen. And Jesus did it for me. And now I'm staring at you. And the years have been so kind. You see, we need to remind ourselves that this is a picture of, of conversion, a picture of what it means to be a Christian, from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, and God is the strength behind it all. Now, for Jesus to perform this miracle this way was not because this was a tough one, right? Remember the context. Jesus and the disciples had just left their mealtime miracle, right? And he asked them, do you have, chapter 8, verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see? And remember, they said nothing. And of course, the answer to that question was rhetorical. Yes, you guys have eyes, and yes, you're not seen. You are blind to the true identity of who Jesus is. So, just as it took a miracle to give the blind man physical sight, it's going to take a miracle for the disciples to receive their spiritual sight and to finally discover in some measure who Jesus is. But even after they get the part one miracle... Mark's going to show us they're going to need a part two. But we need to move on. So we have an intervention and a healing. Darkness to light. Blind, now see. Then verse 27, two questions and an answer. And if your Bible's open, you'll see that, right? Jesus and the 12 have moved from Bethsaida, uh, 25 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. And somewhere along the journey, Jesus asked the question, which is essentially, okay, what's the word on the street about me? Verse 27, who do people say I am? Now, that's an understandable question for Jesus, since Jesus is the key to everything, since he's the most important person who's ever lived, since his mission is the most important mission that was ever accomplished. So for Jesus to ask that question, it is so good and it is so proper because he is a matter of absolute necessity. So again, there's no ego here. Jesus knew He also knew, if you would, that public opinion about him, like now, suspect, it's fickle, it kind of wax and wanes and moves. So he asked two questions to distinguish what is true and what was false between public opinion and divine truth. First question, who do people say I am? Second question, who do you say I am? Now, Christian, before we move on, it's good to realize that once our lives come under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, once our lives come under the jurisdiction of Christ, our thinking comes under his sovereignty, our thinking and living comes under his jurisdiction as well. Once we say we're Christian, once we say Jesus is Lord, we no longer think our own thoughts about Jesus. We no longer manufacture our own opinions about Jesus. We do not derive our Opinions about our thoughts about Jesus, excuse me, from public opinion. Because we belong to Jesus. We follow his mind. We follow his teachings. We follow the apostles' teachings. And thank God that we have it in his word. So that the bent of our life is like the bent of our master's life. Near the cross. Near the cross. First question, who do people say I am? The answer that you see there is nice, but it's wrong. Some say John the Baptist, prophet. Some say Elijah, prophet. Still others, one of the prophets. Each case, prophet, prophet, prophet. Now, I want you to listen carefully. The prophets were wonderful. Their core work 
was to bear witness that there was a Messiah coming. They were to point to the Messiah in their preaching and in their ministry. And they're going to say, when Messiah comes, he's going to set everything right. But the crowds, the best they can do on their own is Jesus is a prophet. On their own, Jesus is a prophet, not the Messiah. Messiah. And by the way, that's the best that any person could do on their own without a work of God's grace. And of course, you hear this all the time. Who is Jesus? Well, he's a really good man. Well, he's just another religious teacher of all, among all the pantheon of religious teachers. He's a guru. He's another healer. He's a Mr. Fix-It, right? He can fix families. He can fix finance. And he can fix your future. And if you listen carefully to him, give right, save right, he's going to give you the dream life. Now, loved ones, please listen. The counterpart to truth is not alternative truth, but lies and falsehood and fantasies. Hence, the second question Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And what do you know? Almost out of nowhere, there's Peter, verse 29. You are the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, how in the dickens did he get that? I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Peter was in a boat The whole thing was shutting down, and Jesus fixes everything, and they're like, who is this guy, right? Well, what do we have here? A few clicks from this occasion, Peter, just like the rest of the 12, they can't answer Jesus' string of questions, which ended with what? Do you understand understand who I am? Peter is speechless, but now he's not speechless. How did that happen? What happened between then and now? Well, let me tell you how it didn't happen. Peter did not reason his answer out. Peter didn't think it through and say, Eureka, you're the Messiah. Because that's not possible by any mere human. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the same question and answer session is recorded for us. And response to Peter's answer, Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. Now, we need to be mindful of the word that Jesus used, revealed. In other words, this is revealed truth. This is specific revelation. This was truth that you nor anyone could come up with on their own. You do not have the power, Peter, on your own to see Jesus as he ought to be seen. No one does. In other words, this was not an investigation which produces a conclusion. Rather, this was revelation, which produces a confession. Verse 29, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Mark and Matthew, as gospel writers, they're doing the same thing, but they're doing it in a different way. They're both making it clear the absolute necessity of a miraculous intervention of God if a person will come to know Jesus proper. And that's the point. It will take a miraculous intervention if a person will come to know Jesus proper. Matthew gives it in a statement. Mark illustrates it by way of this miracle of the blind man now seen. But even after this, and what we'll find is that their understanding It's still mangled up. It's still fallen, just like ours is from time to time, right? Sometimes we forget Jesus. My guess is, if we're going to forget about who Jesus is, 
My guess is that most of us here, we're going to make a much meaner, crueler, tighter Jesus than a a generous, loving, gracious Jesus. You you can tell me I'm wrong after the service, but that's not my guess because I know my own nature. One, One mistake with this and it's all coming down. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. And so... Sometimes, verse 24, we look at things and we look at Jesus as like people looking at trees walking around. Which is probably why Jesus warns them, verse 30, do not tell anyone about me, about his Messiahship. And that statement by Jesus has puzzled theologians for centuries and they actually have given it a name. It's called the Messianic Secret. But it shouldn't puzzle us. Jesus is teaching his disciples what our parents taught us, right? Didn't your parents teach you this? If you don't know what you're talking about, it's better to say nothing until you do know what you're talking about. I mean, that's main and plain. Otherwise, you're going to cause confusion. And especially in the case here is the people to whom you're talking, they have all these messianic notions and they're all wrong and it's all wrapped up in political revolution and the prevailing idea that there's a certain political ideology and that is theology. That's what God wants. He wants to get rid of the Romans. He wants to put us on top and we're going to be great forever and ever. Amen. No. I remember my dad used to say this a lot, and don't ask me why. He would say, don't tell your mother. (laughs) My dad listens to the sermon, so I'll probably get a call in a few weeks. He's like, what was that all about, Joe? (laughs) The disciples hadn't gotten it all down. They're getting the first part right, but they need another lesson. Sinclair Ferguson, only when Jesus is a helpless prisoner in the hands of his enemies, and his messianic claim seemed ridiculous to everyone, was his messiahship to be openly proclaimed. Now, do you understand this? Because this is what Mr. Ferguson is saying. The moment to go and tell that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, would begin, this is the gospel witness, when Jesus has a crown of thorns on his head, when he, when he has spit on him, when he has been mocked and struck and dressed up in a purple robe. So when Jesus is beaten to a bloody pulp and his face all beastly, that's the time that God determined to have the high priest say, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Now think that through, right? Because you can almost hear the stuffy high priest say, really, really this heap of, of flesh before me, and you're God's anointed one? See, we need to picture this. Helpless-looking Jesus, about to undergo the, the worst means of death that the world has ever created, crucifixion. And he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm God's chosen. I'm the one who's going to restore things back to the way they were meant to be. Thinking that out, high priest all cleaned up, Shiny, bright, and there's the Son of God, all messed up, saying, I'm God's anointed one. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why does God often work that way? It's here in the weakest point of Christ's life. Everything seems lost. Everything looks dead. 
All hope is gone. Hope is nowhere to be found, humanly speaking. And then that is the time when God reveals Messiah. Messiah. I have one answer to that question. Think about the beginning. Like in the beginning, the beginning in Genesis, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to her eye, and she saw it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were open, and they realized they had been duped, seeing things in their own strength, everything looking wonderful in their own eyes. And they eat, and they see things as they actually are. And we've been paying for that ever since. Therefore, it is only an act of God. When a person's eyes are opened by God and they see the king there, all mangled, nailed, bleeding to his death on a cross, that they can say, Messiah, Savior, Master, King. And they glory in the cross. And they write songs about the cross. And they tell people about the cross. I've been reading this book about Leonardo da Vinci. He lived uh, in the 16th century. And I'm at the part of the book when it's talking about his artwork. And he did a lot of religious artwork. And this is pre-Reformation. So it makes sense to me that all the artwork that he did of Jesus was always cleaned up Jesus. Even hanging on the cross, cleaned up Jesus. Looking like a, a bodybuilder, if you would, on the cross. They didn't know. They didn't know that's the best that they could do. So here's the pivotal point. Because at this point, we move from lesson one, who is Jesus, answer Messiah, to lesson two, which forms the rest of the gospel. Okay, what does Messiah come to do? Which takes us to our final point. There's a prediction and a confrontation. So there was a healing. There were some questions and an answer. Now a prediction and confrontation. And you see, the prediction comes in the form of a lesson. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things. Again, theologians call this the divine must. Jesus is using the language of necessity here. Because before there was time, before there was space or anything, this was God's plan. In order to redeem God's people from God's righteous wrath against their sin. This is why Jesus must suffer. This is why we must have a suffering servant. So sometimes people ask the question, why can't we just have a Messiah who's just there for us? Right? A kind of sidearm Messiah. Things don't go the way that we'd like. We take out our arm, aiming at the problem, boom. Problem gone. I like that kind of Messiah. No, he must suffer many things. He must die because the punishment for sin is death. And if Jesus was to save his people from God's wrath on their sin, he must die. And verse 31b, he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law. And the average Jewish person would go, oh, wait a minute. When the Messiah comes, you'd think he'd be tight with these religious guys. I mean, look at them. They are so serious about everything. They're serious about the way they walk. They're serious about the way they talk. They're serious about synagogue. But no, no, no. These guys are at odds with Jesus, and Jesus is at odds with them. Their way is not his way. Their understanding of the scripture, wrong. Their way of life, wrong. Religious, but wrong. Jesus continues, and that he must be killed. 
And after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Uh, The word in the Greek plainly has the idea he spoke with confidence. In other words, not only must this happen, this is going to happen. Jesus combines his divinity, his humanity, and God's plan of vicarious substitution. Christ would satisfy the demands of God's justice and prevent his people from having to endure an eternity of punishment through his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And notice that the disciples have to be taught this. And the idea here, even in the Greek, it's not one and done. It's a continuous lesson. And it's interesting, in verse 30, if your Bible's open, you'll see this. There's no break as there is in the NIV and I think even in the ESV. It's one long continuous sentence from verses 30 to 31. In other words, tell no one because you need lesson time. Here's the lesson and I'm going to tell you again. Just like you and I, nothing has changed. We need to sing about the cross. We need to preach the cross. We need to learn what it means to carry our cross because, loved ones, we know this is true. We know this is true. We are so prone to wander from the cross. It is a stumbling block. It is a great stumbling block. And it's only by God's grace that can have any meaning at all and generate the kind of life that Christ would have us live. I was listening to listening and viewing a podcast of probably one of the brightest conservative minds there is on the planet right now. He was asked a straightforward question, are you a Christian? His response was essentially, well, it depends on what you mean by Christian. Ugh. The interviewer, who was not a Christian, said, do you believe Christ died on the cross for sins and was raised from the dead on the third day? Now listen, up till then, this guy had the tongue of a skillful writer. I mean, he was just like, blah, 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 blah. You're just captivated by his language. As soon as he was confronted with that statement, it all shuts down. He's mumbling. He's stumbling. He's like me asking my wife to marry me. It's like, you can't even come up with a sentence. That's what the cross does. Okay, who is Jesus? Do you believe that he suffered and died on the cross for your sins? His answer, the best he could come up with was, right now, I'm, I'm agnostic. May God, may God be pleased to open his eyes. May God be pleased to open his eyes. Jesus makes the prediction, and then it's met with a confrontation. Here comes Peter again, right? I'm sure every family has a Peter. <laughs> Peter doesn't like what his master has to say. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Um, it could read something like this. Peter warns Jesus in his instruction to Jesus to zip it. (laughs) Peter honors Peter by censoring Jesus. Dick Lucas, writing humorously on this, says, Peter is now going to explain the Bible to Jesus. (laughs) What audacity we have. What audacity we have. How blind we really are. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's kind of cool, right? He looks at them, but gives it to Peter. And now Jesus honors Jesus by censoring Peter. That's good, because Jesus is truth. He can do that. And so Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Now, why did he say that to Peter? Was Peter Satan? Of course not. He said this to Peter because this was the exact same line of thinking that the evil one had in the wilderness. To take Jesus away from the Father's will 
and have a crossless Christ. Right? A crossless Christ. So the evil one took Jesus to the high mountain and said, you know what? This can all be yours. Look at it, look at it all. It all can be yours. All you got to do, worship me, listen to me, obey me, don't go to the cross. So Jesus, you're not going to have to walk down the Via Della Rosa with the cross on your back. There's going to be no, no need for the mocking and the striking and the spitting and all that stuff. And you're definitely not going to have to suffer God's wrath on people's sin. There's going to be no rejection. There's going to be no bloody, messy death. And thank God Jesus says to Satan, get away from me. And Peter's mind is Satan's mind. No suffering, no cross. And Jesus says essentially the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. You see it there. You don't have God's concerns before you. You have merely human concerns. What, what are merely human concerns? It's the stuff of time and the stuff of our flesh and the stuff of self and the stuff of ease and no suffering and certainly no cross. Thank God that Jesus said, this is the Father's will and I've come down from heaven to do the Father's will. The, the evil one would be very, very happy if we have a Messiah. Lots and lots of Messiahs. Just as long as it isn't this Messiah. The evil one is happy to fill the world with lots of religious people. And people can tell us about personal improvement and inner peace and help us with all kinds of things. However, he is terribly opposed to a Messiah who will die for sin and be raised to life. And that's how sinister he is. It's a Hansel and Gretel. Fatten us up for the day of our slaughter. And if the evil one can seduce pastors and teachers and churches to leave behind the cross, you know, except for Christmas and Easter, if he doesn't, if he would have his way and we would not know anything about substitutionary atonement, we wouldn't even know what the word propitiation means. If he can divert the church to everything temporal, of human wisdom and self-fulfillment, then 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, then the cross is emptied of its power. Now let's make some application before we leave. Many churches, unfortunately, they assume the message of the cross. But they no longer lay much emphasis on it. So they preach and teach whatever, and at the end they say, oh yeah, if you'd like to become a Christian, here's the way. Why do you do that? I'll give you one reason why you do that. Because to get to the good news, we have to have the bad news. We have to see the gravity of our sin. But if we don't see the gravity of our sin, we'll never know, we'll never understand the greatness of God's love. And we'll always manufacture God's love by what we have and what we don't have, what we do and what we don't do, what we can't go and all that kind of stuff. Remember uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when Christian cries out, blessed be the man that there was put to shame for me. We need to be glad about the cross. The cross undermines all our self-righteousness. We don't like that by nature because by nature we want to be the number one Christian in the room. The cross takes away all personal boasting. We do not like that by nature. We like to say, oh man, I was praying so hard and I was doing so right and I was doing so great. Then boom, God did the great thing. The cross levels the playing field. 
And the only way anyone, anyone, anyone can come to the cross is with a broken spirit and a bended knee asking God for mercy. By golly, that is hard to do in 21st century America. By nature, we have no problem with a Messiah just as long as it is a Messiah that fits me. But Jesus doesn't fit me. Jesus transforms me. He transforms my thinking. He transforms my living. He tells me the reason for my existence. And he tells me why I'm on this planet. So that's why when a man or a woman or a young person, now listen carefully, especially young people, when they come to Jesus and they say, save me and forgive me, and they declare him to be king of everything, the son of God, the Christ, their savior, their Messiah, when they do that, you know that there has been a miraculous intervention. Which begs the question, has there been a miraculous intervention in your life? Has there been an actual miraculous intervention in your life? I'm not asking you, do you get sad about being bad and you want to do better? I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you if you like to pray, sing, sit, listen, and serve. I'm not even asking you if you like this place. I hope you do. I'm asking you, has there been a miraculous intervention in your life? And if you say in your mind right now, I don't know, I promise you, there hasn't been one. Because when Jesus does his thing, you will know, and your friends will know, and your family will know, and your colleagues will know, just like the blind man coming home, seeing his family knew. There was no mystery there. Dad left blind, but now he sees. Who did that for you, Dad? Jesus. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we believe this. Not the labor of our hands could ever fill your law's demands. Could our zeal, no, no respite, no. Could our tears forever flow? All for sin, those things could not atone. You must save, and you alone. Father, thank you for the truth of the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this picture, because it's such a humbling picture. We want to work hard. We need to work hard. But our hard work has never been the decisive factor in anything. You and you alone. For some of us, that can settle us down. For others, it might be very humbling to hear. But for all of us who belong to you, we know, we know that it's only by your grace that we can say Jesus is Lord. And it's only by your grace can we say Jesus is our friend and our Savior. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with everyone who believes, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.